This morning's Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 20. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever, commit, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Good morning, everybody. It's my privilege to bring God's word to you this morning, and we are going to need his help, so let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would give us minds that can understand the meaning of these words, that we might know what you say, what you think. We pray too that you would give us hearts humble enough to recognize that when Your word is different from our attitudes. It is our attitudes that need to change. And we pray for a willingness to do that. Amen. Paul's basic point is very, very simple in this passage. Your body is not meant for immorality, but for immortality. That's it. Your body is not meant for immorality, but for immortality. That is what he's going to tell us. Now, the thing is, when we think of what is truly spiritual, very few of us instantly think about this. I mean, next time you get out of the shower in the morning, uh, look in the mirror and ask yourself, how spiritually valuable does that look? Uh, If you add up the the value of all the chemicals that your, your body is comprised of, it comes to about 173 pounds. That's it. But more than that, it's not just a a question of economic value. The the human body just seems so undignified. When you think of the the sort of the smells and the sweats that come out of the human body, not to mention the other things. I mean, what possible spiritual value can this have? We're quite glad we all clothed this morning. There's something, you know, the, the human body is a pretty odd thing. And yet, 
When Jesus had died on the cross to pay for sin, now God the Son had not had a body for all eternity. He only took a body on uh, so that he could die on the cross to pay for sin. But when he rose again three days later, he took back that body. And now for all eternity in the future, God the Son has a human body. A perfected human body, but a human body nonetheless. And that means that these things, what you look at when you get out of the shower in the morning, has enormous dignity, enormous value, unimaginable worth. It should be no surprise to to find that given that God the Son has a human body forever, that God cares enormously what you do with your body now, today. God made your body. God cares about your body, and he wants you to honor him with it. Your body's not meant for immorality, but for immortality, which is an enormous challenge in our culture because one of the massive credos of our culture is, I am free to do whatever I like with my body. It is mine to do with as I want. And as you'll have noticed from the reading, the main focus of Paul here is uh, sexual behavior. And in our culture, we basically say there is only one rule when it comes to sex. Only one rule, and that is that it must be consensual. That's a very, very important rule that the Bible endorses. But we say that's the only rule. And that's a view that would have gone down very well with the church Paul is writing to in Corinth. Verse 12a, I have the right to do anything you say. Paul's quoting a a slogan that the Corinthian church used, and it seems that it's come from a kind of half understanding of the gospel, the central message of Christianity. Uh, If you look at uh, verses 9 to 11, they heard verses like this, and they they, they got part of it, but they missed part of it. So verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, they grasped something. They grasped that when you turn to put your trust in Jesus Christ, God sets us free. God sets us free. That whatever we've done, no matter how deeply we've been involved in it, we're set free. Uh, We are washed clean of the the stain and filth of sin. We're sanctified. That is, we're now set apart for, for serving God. And we're justified. In other words, we are declared fully right, fully acceptable, perfect in God's sight. Sin no longer holds you if you trust in Jesus. Sin no longer determines your destiny. God does. But where they went wrong is how they responded to this. They said, I've been set free. I've been washed clean. Well, hey, I can do what I like then. I can do absolutely anything I want because I'm free. And that was especially true in Corinth for how they behaved sexually. Now, sex is a very sensitive topic. And I'm aware that it's pretty hard to talk to a big group about it because uh, not all of us here will be convinced Christians. Some of us still thinking these things through. And even amongst the Christians, there are, there are likely to be two, two rough groups. Some of us are probably oversensitive. We're gripped with shame because of things that we've done in the past. And sadly, others will feel shame because of what's been done to us, which is, which is terrible. But whatever the case, 
If that's you, you need to know the Lord Jesus meant the words spoken by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 to 11. Church is a place full of, uh, well, people who stealing, for whom natural behavior is stealing, illicit sex, getting drunk, lying, and swindling people. He says that's the natural behavior of church, but Jesus changes you. So please don't feel your past means you're, oh, there's no way I could ever fit in here. Jesus accepts everybody and anybody. Otherwise, there'd be nobody here. If you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, he washes you clean of all and every sin. Whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, if you trust in Jesus this morning, you are pure. You are clean. God says you're pure. You're clean. So who cares what you feel or what others say? God says you're welcome. You need to see the balloon above that we were looking at with the children and remember, God's love for you is higher than anything in this world and far greater than your sin. I guess others of us, though, have probably got the opposite problem. There will always be some amongst us who hear the Bible's clear teaching on sex and our genius is making excuses. Yeah, look, I I know it says that, but um, it it is different for me. Life is just a bit complicated. If you only knew the marriage I had to put up with. Uh, look, God understands. Or we think, uh, because I've been forgiven, it doesn't really matter what I do. I can do what I like. I'm forgiven. And if that's you, then God has strong words of warning this morning. And my prayer preparing this was that the right people would hear the right things from, from what Paul says here. Now, before we actually get into the detail, we're going to be focusing on verses 12 to 20. We are picking back up. We've been working through 1 Corinthians slowly, and we had a little break, and we're now back in and diving in halfway through chapter 6. And Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians to the church in a a town called Corinth in uh, ancient Greece. And it's a town where the church was trying to basically fit in and be popular and be liked so they didn't get persecuted. And What it meant was that the church was basically being squeezed into the mold of Corinth. They were trying to do Christianity in a way which pleased and fitted in with Corinth rather than honoring God and fitted in with the Jesus who gave himself in self-sacrifice and humility. But we're in a new section really in the letter now. And in this section, it's all full of questions that the church has asked Paul that he's answering and slogans that the church declared that Paul is challenging. Questions and slogans, really. And here we go, three points as we work through these verses. Firstly, freedom in Christ is freedom from sin, not for sin. Paul's got some slogans of his own for them. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, Paul is challenging immediately what they say. And his point is, look, you'll never get the right answer if you ask the wrong question. And the Corinthians are only asking one question when it comes to sex, which is, can I? Can I? And Paul says, hang on, there are two other questions you ought to be asking. Is it beneficial? And secondly, does it enslave? Is it, is it beneficial? If I own a Ferrari 250 GTO... I am free to fill it up with diesel and drive it into a wall. You ask, can I do that? Well, yes, you can take 10 million pounds worth of classic sports car and fill it with diesel and drive it into a wall. You're free to do that. 
is it really beneficial for you or the car? Not so sure. No. Is it beneficial, Paul says? Don't just ask, can I do what I want sexually? Ask, is it actually spiritually beneficial for me? And secondly, does it enslave? I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. It's an empty freedom if the freedom I use just leads to a deeper, darker slavery. And Paul is writing, as I've said, about sexual behavior here. And it seems to me that many have found the miserable cost of failing to ask those two questions. Just two ways, perhaps. So affairs, it does seem that it is standard editorial policy for pick whatever broadsheet you happen to like, or tabloid, and the weekend magazine is guaranteed to have at least one article where a very erudite, sophisticated person says how healthy and helpful having an affair is actually for marriage. Yeah, they might be uh, um, a sexual therapist, or they might just be a very socially capable and wise journalist writing of their own experience and saying, we need to get over these silly Victorian morals. And actually, if you only understood and were a little bit more liberated, you find out how much more healthy it is for your marriage to allow one another a little bit more sexual freedom. How sophisticated, how liberated. But then you spend time with people in the real world, not the weekend magazine world, and you see the reality. It is just misery. Utter misery. The smoldering wreckage where once there was a family. The toxic bitterness where once there was a relationship founded on trust and love. It's not beneficial. It's just miserable. Secondly, slavery. Uh, you know, internet addresses, they still pretty much, uh, they all have to start with www. It would probably be more appropriate, actually, if they started with xxx, because the biggest industry on the internet and in one sense, the biggest cultural shift that's happened with the internet has been the pornification of society. Free access to anything you could possibly want to look at and a whole lot of things you had no idea you might want to look at. But those who exercise that freedom, can I? Well, those who do so find to their cost that that freedom leads to a dark, dark slavery. Is it beneficial? Does it enslave? You see, we need to read verse 12 that Paul writes in the light of verses 9 to 11. In those verses, as we've already seen, he demonstrates that Christ sets us free. We're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. But that freedom is a freedom from sin, not a freedom for sin. Freedom from sin, not for sin. The freedom that Jesus gives in the gospel is the freedom to be all that God intended you to be. Uh, free from the corrosive, the life-limiting, the misery-bringing, the blindness, the slavery of sin. Free from all of that. Imagine a, a man who has lived in North Korea and manages to escape across the border into South Korea. And they arrive in and they're told, welcome to freedom. And they think, thank goodness, I've lived under the slavery of North Korea for so long. How wonderful, they say. Am I really free in this country of South Korea? Absolutely, they answer, probably in Korean. Uh, great, so I'm free, Does it, uh, so I can steal things if I see things that I want that other people own. And if someone pushes past me on public transport, I can punch them. I'm free. Uh, no, you can't do those things. Well, that's not freedom. What kind of freedom is it if I can't steal things I want or punch people who annoy me? How's that freedom? Actually, it's the best kind of freedom. It's freedom to live in a society with wise, 
healthy, life-affirming laws that enable everybody to flourish. That's the same for you and me. When we turn to follow Jesus Christ, we can ask, oh, great, so I'm free. I can do anything I want. Well, actually, we're free to live in God's wise ways. Lots of the things we might choose to do aren't good for us or others. And so God gives us the best sort of freedom, the freedom to live in healthy, happy, life-affirming ways. Freedom in Christ is freedom from sin, not for sin. Uh, Secondly, what you do with your body matters. Okay, so the question is, what on earth made the Corinthians think, I can claim to be a follower of Jesus, and I can pursue all sorts of sordid sexual immorality? What on earth made them think that could be okay? Well, actually, their argument was pretty simple. Look at verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're saying, look, sex is just a bodily appetite. It's no different to getting hungry and eating. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. God couldn't care less what I do with my body. And at the end, it's just going to die and rot. It's your soul, your spirit, the real you is all that really matters. Now, once again, we see the root of the problem is that the church in Corinth is shaped less by the word of God and the cross of Christ and more by the culture of Corinth. And Corinth was very much steeped in Greek dualism. Please don't glaze over. This is important. Greek dualism basically is that dualism too, it's the idea that the the Greeks really bought into that the real you was the soul, the spirit inside, and your body was, was less valuable, less important. And death would be wonderful because your soul would be liberated from this this mud, this clay, this earthly body. Actually, interestingly, that that idea is really alive and well and taking off again today. People in our culture are buying in increasingly to the idea that the real me is is something deep inside. And the body, this body, well, it's just a suit I wear. So if I feel I was born with the wrong suit, well, I just change it in whatever way I, I fancy. And I can use it in any way that I want. Back to Corinth. Now, what happens if Christians buy into this idea, this dualistic idea? Well, what happens when you look at church history is people go one of two ways. Either they become ascetic, which means they deny all bodily pleasure because the body is nothing. Uh, and so they go out and live in the desert like the, the mystics, the early mystics, living in caves and refusing to have any physical appetites that are indulged. They, they become ascetic. Or secondly, they behave like the Corinthians, indulging in all manner of physical appetites because, well, it's just a matter of the body. It has no impact on my soul. So even if the the Bible says it's a sin, it doesn't really matter because it's only a bodily activity. It doesn't touch my soul. Well, Paul counters it very strongly. You say the food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Your body is not meant for immorality, but when Jesus returns, for immortality. It's not just your soul that interests God. It's your body too, your hands, your feet, your lips, all of it. It's interesting. Do you remember how Paul's letter for the Romans begins the the section when Paul starts to say, okay, now that I've explained the gospel, how God saves you, let me tell you how to live. We're going to be studying it this year in uh, home groups. So if you can't remember, don't worry, we'll come to it soon. As he turns to chapter, in chapter 12 to address that question of how to live in the light of Jesus saving us, 
He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Jesus wants more than your heart. He wants you to serve and honor him with your hands and your feet and your mouth and your brain and every other organ, all of your body. And the proof of this comes in verse 14. Look what happens when Jesus returns. When, as I said at the beginning, when the Father raised Jesus bodily from the grave, it wasn't just his spirit that was raised, it was his body. And when Jesus returns, we won't float off into heaven to become disembodied spirits. We'll get new bodies raised immortal to serve and enjoy God forever in his paradise kingdom. So don't think it doesn't matter what you do with your body so long as you love Jesus in your heart. God made your body. Jesus died to redeem your body. He wants you to serve and honor him with your body. And it is with your body that you will live with him forever. Your body is not meant for immorality, but for immortality. Now, before moving on, I just want to show that actually, although our culture might resist this, deep down we know that the Bible is right at this point. I hear a lot of people making the Corinthian argument these days, but using different language. When people are discussing, mocking, uh, the Bible's teaching on sex, they often say some version of, oh, stop being so uptight. It's just an appetite. It's healthy. When you're hungry, you eat. So when you feel in need of sex, you should have sex. It's not healthy to deny appetites. But none of us really, honestly, deeply believes that. Let me show you why. If sex is no different from eating, just another appetite, then forcing somebody at gunpoint to have sex with you is no different from forcing them at gunpoint to eat a burger with you. Just an appetite, fulfilling a different appetite with a gun, that's all. And yet somehow, as awful as it is to have a burger with a gun at your head, to be raped, that is a thousand times worse. That is a profoundly wicked act. See, sex is not just an appetite with the body that doesn't touch the real you. Somehow we know that deep down there is something more going on, that what we do with our bodies and our sexual appetites, it does matter, and God is right to care about it. It's a matter of profound importance. <laughs> well, actually, there's something in that last sentence that wasn't quite right. What we do with our bodies. Paul ratchets things up a bit in the final verses as he says, eh, it's not actually your body. If you're a Christian, what you do with Christ's body matters. These verses make for very sobering reading as he reminds us that when I use this body for sexual immorality, I'm not just defending against the purpose of my body that's designed for immortality. I'm actually using Christ's body for immorality. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see, to be a Christian is not just to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus. It's to be in him. 
That's the most common phrase used in the New Testament. 162 times the New Testament says, if you trust in Jesus, you're in him. We're in Christ, united to him by faith in such a, a profound and deep way that we are we're in him. And one of the images the New Testament uses to help us get our heads around this is of the head and the body. Christ is the head, and, and we, in one sense, are his body. And building on this reality, Paul asks a very blunt question in verse 15. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? You see, sex is not just a bodily act. It unites. Verse 16, he returns to Genesis 2 and quoting the, the first marriage ceremony in the Bible. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said in Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. God's, God's purpose, part of his purpose in giving sex to the human race was that it would be to unite husband and wife in their marriage, to seal the union by making the two one flesh. And so to have sex with somebody who is not your wife, not your husband, is to abuse God's precious gift. And if someone is in Christ, then to have sex with somebody they shouldn't is to unite themselves in sexual immorality when they ought to be united with Christ. How can you, how can you be united with Christ and then use his body, unite his body in sexual immorality? That's just perverse. Now, he writes particularly about prostitution here because it was part of Corinthian culture. It was so endemic, the, the way that you worshipped and carried on business, that uh, there was prostitution was part of it. That's why he singles it out here. It, but he's, if he was writing to a different church, he'd just say, don't have sex with someone who is not your, your husband or wife. His point is, any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman unites someone who ought to be united with Christ, unites the body of Christ with sexual immorality, which is a terrible thing to do. So how should we respond to this? So, well, flee sexual sin and honor God with your body. Firstly, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't fight, don't resist, don't pray for strength. Flee, run. Now, I think lots of Christians hear Paul's teaching here and respond in an over-spiritual way. We think the answer is to, to pray, to commit ourselves to pray for, for deeper strength to resist. So the Christian struggling uh, with looking at porn on their smartphone asks their friends to pray that they'll have strength to resist, but they keep their smartphone in the room overnight. Or the Christian struggling with temptation of a colleague at work prays for lots of strength to resist, but still goes out for lunch, just the two of them, and always makes a beeline for them at work drinks and enjoys a bit of flirty banter. Now, you often see tourists get a bit confused down at Hyde Park Corner with the, the underpasses, and so they think, well, the easiest way to get from A to B is to walk across however many lanes of traffic at Hyde Park Corner, and uh, I'll just entrust myself to the goodwill and kindness of the London drivers. Um, now, let me say, it is not a profoundly wise response to stand in the middle of Hyde Park Corner praying fervently that the Lord keep me safe from being run over. Just flee, run, go to the other side, and then use the underpass like a sensible person. You don't stand in the middle of the road praying, Lord, save me from the traffic. You run and get off the road. 
And given the subtlety and the power of sexual temptation and the seriousness of sexual sin, don't stand there praying, Lord, help me to be strong as you run, flee, get out of there. Okay, what does that mean in practice? Well, sometimes it means just that, get up and walk out. Uh, you might not hurdle the table away, away from a, somebody at work drinks, but you may just need to do exactly that and just get up and walk out. Uh, for a couple in the evening congregation, talking to quite recently, they were traveling abroad to see her family, and they had to break the flight for a night. And for them, it meant paying a lot of money that they could ill afford to make sure they had two separate rooms. Oh, it would have been so much cheaper just to share a room and, and, and commit themselves to behave. But no, flee from sexual immorality. So they paid for two rooms. And they made sure friends kept them accountable. For a guy I know who has been struggling with porn, it meant he's got rid of his smartphone and he now has one of those old brick phones. Just means flee. It'll mean different things for each of us. Different things for each of us. But we're in a sex-obsessed culture. So the truth is that for every single one of us, we will regularly face points where we have to flee. Where we have to stop kidding ourselves that we can be strong or pray for strength or hold one another accountable. No, we just need to flee and get out of there. Flee. God cares what you do with your body. It matters. So flee if you want to honor him. Now, Paul finishes in verses 19 to 20 by saying uh, similar things to what he said already, but in a rather striking way. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. My body, my rights is what we say. But if you trust in Christ, his body, his rights. He lives in you by his spirit. It's his home. And he doesn't live in you as a tenant. He lives in you because he bought you when he died for you at the cross. Your body, my body, belongs to him. He paid the price of his death to rescue, to redeem. And he redeemed it not that we carry on in immorality, but that we might have immortality, living forever in perfect freedom with him. It's the Rugby World Cup soon, which excites some of us and not others. Uh, the, they've just announced the squads. Very exciting for some of us, not others. But the, uh, a number of the players who've been selected, they are no longer free. The moment they're selected, their bodies, their food intake, their sleep regimen, what they do belongs to the coach, and in one sense to the rest of us, the supporting public. And they can moan and grumble. I, I want to be free to go out and stay out till three in the morning and, and eat Domino's pizzas as much as I like, but that freedom no longer belongs to them. They've been selected. The coach has rights over them. But it's a wonderful, huge privilege for them. They get to play for their country. They get to put on the shirt and represent and go for glory in the World Cup. That's a tiny shadow of a reflection. You and I, if we put our trust in Christ, in one sense, we lose some freedom. We can't just do what we want anymore. But we're set free from the slavery to sin. And now we have a greater purpose. Christ owns us. He has rights over us. But we have this enormous privilege. Now we get to serve Almighty God. 
Now we get to enjoy him forever in his remade paradise. Now we get to look forward to our bodies lasting forever, being immortal, and knowing and serving him in paradise. See, the Bible doesn't call for sexual purity because God hates sex and thinks it's dirty. He invented it. The Bible calls us to sexual purity because God made your body and he loves it. He made your body in a profound way in his image. He redeemed your body by dying in its place. And he lives in your body now by his Holy Spirit. It's his temple, his home. So don't use your body for immorality. Live for immortality. Serve him now and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, pray that you would give us understanding to know that in the gospel, that in spite of the unique power of sex to bring shame to us when we abuse it, that we are washed clean. But help us, having been washed clean, to turn away from sin and to enjoy the freedom of living your way, looking forward to sharing in your heavenly kingdom. Help us to see in our body your purposes and your pleasures, and help us to walk away, to flee, to run from sin. Amen.